On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse, we talk with an abuse survivor named Clementine. And Clementine was in an abusive relationship with an altruistic narcissist. It's a story of neurodivergency, sexual assault, making yourself small, hoovering, and financial abuse. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Clementine. How are you? I'm doing fantastic. Thank you. Well, thank you for being here with us today. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Clementine is, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that button. It takes you to our uh, Guest Form page. Either send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com after you read all of our instructions or fill out our Guest Form page and press the Submit button. And today, Clementine is going to tell her story. And it's not an easy story to hear. We discuss, uh, so there's a big trigger warning here. Uh, we discuss sexual assault. We also discuss uh, a couple of suicide attempts as well in this episode. So please be aware of that. This is a big trigger warning for that. And Clementine will also be discussing uh, her neurodivergency and how all this plays into uh, everything and how her abuser was able to get away with a lot of things. So I really just want to thank uh, Clementine for being here. And now, without further ado, Clementine, the floor is now yours. Well, thank you. Thank you for giving me the opportunity to hopefully um, maybe help uh, others that have experienced the same um, type of um, abuse in their own lives and uh, perhaps give some hope. Uh, because there is hope at the end of this story uh, that I definitely want to share, and it has been a very long journey. I first would like to just start out uh, maybe giving some uh, prehistory of what my life was like as a young child and bringing us forward to the future, which somewhat just intertwines the entire uh, experience, um, as well as discuss um, the neurodivergent aspect. Um, and and how so many of us neurodivergent, and I'll explain more about that later, um, makes us more susceptible to abuse, and especially from narcissists. Um, so I was um, born into a very abusive family, a uh, mother uh, who was highly abusive, uh, who ended up leaving me in a hospital without my biological father knowing and which led me eventually being put into an orphanage. And during that time, uh, my biological parents would bring me back and forth to the home and back into the orphanage uh, for a period of several years before I was finally adopted by a really amazing family. So early on during that first three-year period, as you know, even doctors or scientists have, have shown, the attachment uh, disorders were already in place at that point. 
and the abandoning and the bringing back and being on good behaviors and not those not maybe good behaviors as a baby uh, kind of set the groundwork uh, for um, what was going to happen later as far as the attachment and anxiety disorders that we see so often in us as abuse survivors and especially from narcissists. So following um, being adopted into the family, I had a fairly, what I would say, somewhat idyllic childhood. Um, I went to good schools. I was an undiagnosed autistic um, child at that point. Um, And so there was a lot of things that were happening. I was getting good grades. I was... um, involved in sports, I had social relationships, but one thing that was going undetected was my inability to be able to understand social cues or interpret social cues. So my relationships with people, uh, both whether it was in a boyfriend relationship in high school to just regular relationships, um, I was always coming from the aspect that they all had the same intentions that I did that I was coming from a good place. And so that paired with being in a religious household of turn the other cheek, um, sticks and stones can't hurt your, uh, what is it? What is it? Sticks and stones will break my bones, (laughs) but names will never hurt me. Correct. There we go. So it's kind of established that, you know, we're being raised as, um, that we words can't hurt us. Abusive words and terms cannot harm us, which we know now from a psychological you know, standpoint, that is just not true. They can be highly damaging. So I kind of just navigated my way through um, a great, what I perceived as a, a really great childhood and uh, with parents who were loving and provided for, for me uh, on through college. And then um, started in through, you know, young adulthood. And I met my first husband, who was a really amazing man. And we became married. And I had um, a wonderful child with him together. And we had a life of 28 years together. And within that marriage relationship, it was what I would define as a pretty typical relationship. Um, there was not abuse involved. There was not, um, you know, disrespect outside of what normal humans, what I view as what normal humans engage in. You know, yet it's not that we didn't fight. It's just that we were not involved in the psychological games. It was, yeah, you know, you're getting on my nerves and, you know, just, just having what I had seen growing up as a typical relationship. So, I didn't have experiences early on um, in that relationship with anything being out of the ordinary. We, I had breast cancer uh, in the relationship, and that's, that's what drove us apart. And he was 19 years older, so the age difference drove us apart. It wasn't abuse that drove us apart. It was those two things. And we ended up um, getting divorced. Uh, when my daughter was in um, middle school, but we co-parented successfully and um, kind of just, you know, went our own way. 
so, so sorry. So, so when you say that the age difference uh, drove you apart or, uh, originally, it, it didn't. So, what happened eventually where your age difference then did become an issue? Well, it became an issue after I had breast cancer twice, and I started to want different things in my life because of all of a sudden you now have your. Um, mortality, you know, in your face, and you're realizing, wait a minute, life is going to end. This is not just an ongoing thing that we experience. And so he had a different idea of what he wanted for his life. He was highly successful in his career, and he was very content with that social type of environment of we lived, you know, in a nice home. We had, you know, the country club playing golf. Uh, My daughter went to private school. So we, we had all of these trappings of what he believed was a successful life. And I wanted something different. So, so I guess the best, so I guess the best way to explain that would be he was later on in his life and he was just content the way it was. This is in his mind, this is retirement to me and this is what I want to do with the rest of my life at this specific age and you yourself were much younger and you were like well I still want to live essentially yes and and especially after having breast cancer you know it and reconstruction all the things that go along with that that really did play into it and we were able to have that conversation um, and like I said be able to successfully without it's surprising. Most people don't understand it, but surprisingly, without uh, really any drama, um, we were able to uh, sever that marriage relationship, which really had become more of just a friendship at that point, and um, go find those things that we wanted in our own lives. He went on and had a romantic relationship with someone who was his age, and it was a great, I, I loved her. She was an amazing person. And um, I you know, went on to uh, try to pursue what what I wanted in my life. And that's when I met somebody my own age that I thought this was going to be a perfect scenario because we seemed to match. Everything just seemed to align. So before we get into discussing this person, after leaving this relationship, uh, that was a very long relationship. You had a child with this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you co-parent with this person. Um, what are your belief systems? How are you feeling about yourself at this point? And uh, do you know about your neurodivergency yet? Um, and and that aspect of things. Um, well, yes, I I was aware of, of the neurodivergent um, diagnosis and. To be transparent as far as relationship, I wasn't looking for a relationship. I wasn't, and I was not consciously thinking of what I wanted differently in the next relationship. I never, ever put anything down. There there was no type of thought process at all. And I think that maybe were some of the, from this you know, neurodivergence and autistic standpoint is that it never crossed my mind to think about what I wanted. It just wasn't even part of my aspect because I just come through breast cancer. And so at that point, I'd had a full bilateral mastectomy and reconstruction, and it had been a very difficult process. And so 
I wasn't feeling very good about myself at that point. Um, I had scars. I had gone through a lot of trauma physically. And I thought, how would I ever explain the scarring and the difference in the way I looked physically? Because even with reconstruction, you don't look as a woman the same as you do, you know, prior to surgery. And the whole aspect of that is different. And so for me, it was just like, well, nobody would probably want to, you know, date somebody like that anyway. And I'm just not interested. I don't want anybody, you know, kind of in my physical space at this point. Um, So I wasn't really looking for that. And I just happened to run into somebody that started meeting some needs that I didn't know that I, I even had, that I never had identified. It took me years to identify what those were at the time. And it just kind of aligned and I fell into it. Let's put it that way. And um, so I met this person online who was the founder of a cancer organization. And we had a whole kind of community out there. And so that's how I first met this person who had this cancer organization, was the founder. And he approached me online to share my story about my cancer. And as, as many hundreds of others have done as well. And so at that point, I noticed that he was starting to call a lot, you know, on the phone and want to talk, but it was always revolving around the cancer story. And he had told me, you know, I knew was very aware that he had another relationship that he was very serious with this person. And so it was long distance. I was living in one state and he was living in another state. So it was in my part, very innocent. Um, And I'm not realizing what's happening to me at this point, which we'll talk about later as we talk about trauma bonds, you know, love bombing, all those things that happen. Um, But he started to call me multiple times a day and engaging me uh, just in my life and asking me a lot of questions about my life. And to me, I thought this person really is interested in what's going on with me. And I shared enormous amounts of information because I felt trust because he had had cancer, seemed to know so much and understood. And the type of cancer he had, he had a, a prostate cancer as a young man and we were exact same age. So I thought he's kind of getting the whole physical aspect of why there is some hesitancy to get in relationships, but he was in a successful relationship. So I thought there's hope for me too. And really feeling that support there. So as time went on, I went down to uh, Austin, Texas uh, to participate in some of these um, Livestrong organization um, um, events. And he met me down there. But he was, we were meeting a lot of people down there. It wasn't just for myself. But he said, hey, I'm going to be down there. Why don't we meet up? And I thought, great. It would be great to, to see you in person. And we did. And we simply, on this first meeting, we talked about our experiences. And he was just everything I thought he was on the phone. Um, he was attentive. He was engaging. He was so just... Uh, interested in everything I had to say, and very non-threatening. 
totally trusted this person. And we had a great interaction and um, decided that we would uh, meet up to talk the next day. But then I was having some side effects from a, a surgery that I'd had just prior. And so I decided to go home early and I left early the next day and went home. But we continued our phone conversations. And I then began to become quite attached uh, long distance. There had been no you know, type of romantic uh, inferences from him at all or myself. But emotionally, I was becoming very attached to him because he felt very safe. And so a few months later, we met up again. And this time is where the relationship then took a turn. And where my neurodivergence now is going to come into play here um, and the autism that I do have. Um, so we met and we had previously discussed, um, I love astronomy. I am absolutely in love with the whole subject and looking at the stars. And he surprisingly was as well. He had the same interests as I did as art, photography, um, Everything that I was just, I couldn't believe, you know, this person um, was so well matched. Um, but we, we met up um, in Austin again, and he said, hey, let's go out into the country. He said, you can really see the stars. There's no light pollution. He said, I also want to show you, he said, this graveyard. He said, it's got all these old gravestones. He said, it's really cool. And I thought, fantastic. And at this point, I thought he was still in his relationship, but he had shared with me not too long after we got in the car that they had broken up. His long distance relationship, they had broken up. He said it was just better. And he didn't seem really upset about it. Um, and secretly, I have to say, I was quite pleased. Um, I was very attracted to this person. I felt like we had so much in common that I might have really found what we referred to as our soulmate. I, I just couldn't believe it. And so we went out into the country and we were looking at the stars and we were identifying the different constellations. And it was quite amazing. And this person is highly intelligent. So there's that attraction from the intelligence standpoint. And so he was showing me all of these things and I was totally enamored. And we started to hear coyotes out in the country and they were howling and, and they seemed to be getting a little closer. And there was a little bit of that, um, you know, intrigueness of some being scared, but yet being, you know, uh, with somebody who you felt very safe with. And he put his arms around me and he kissed me. And it was just a very innocent, sweet, which you would consider romantic kiss. And that was essentially it. it there was nothing that was improper about it. Um, and I had no reason not to feel that this person wasn't safe. I felt, you know, it was, it was fine. So we decided we needed to get back. It was getting late. And we got back into his vehicle, and he reached over and kissed me again. And this is where uh, things changed very quickly. All of a sudden, this person that I felt very safe with, and still felt safe at this point. So at this point, um, all of a sudden, after he had kissed me, he grabbed me and pulled me over to the driver's side of his vehicle. And began to kiss me quite passionately. 
And I was not that I was totally resistant to that aspect of it. It just caught me off guard. And then all of a sudden, um, he began to try to unzip my jeans. And I pushed his hand away. And that's when the tone of voice of this person, as I look back on it now, I, I didn't recognize it at the time, but as I look back on it now, his tone of voice changed and he goes, stop. And I, I, I hesitated for a minute because at this point I'm starting to get confused. And being neurodivergent, there is this place where a depersonalization begins to, to come in and you will freeze when you don't understand what is happening around you. That doesn't apply to everybody who is autistic. It just happens to be um, how I respond. And um, so he began to continue unzipping my jeans, and I pushed his hand away, and he again got very insistent, and he said, stop. Stop pushing my hand away. And I immediately stopped. And that is, at that point... I then was sexually assaulted in the vehicle. I, it um, became a very paralyzing moment and a moment of high confusion. Um, people who are women who are autistic, um, the World Health Organization will show you that up to 30, 40% more women who are autistic, autistic, are sexually assaulted than those who are not. And the reason for that is because of our inability and where we need more support in being able to read those social cues and changes and maybe facial expressions or emotions or other behaviors of other people that maybe someone who is not can pick up on. It's not always why, but in my situation, becoming very confused about what had just happened, and because I had come from a relationship prior, a 28-year relationship prior, that I was coming from a good place. I thought, well, maybe this is just something different that people do, and they're more age-appropriate, and there are really Kendler's chemistry there. Maybe this is just what they do because he acted so normal after it was all over. And I thought maybe I took it wrong. I thought, well, maybe I was, maybe this is what you do, you know, when you're um, in a romantic relationship and uh, maybe I'm just overreacting because he acted normal and he said, oh, I'll see. And he kissed me goodnight and he said, I'll see you tomorrow. And I'm left in a state of confusion about what's just happened. Am I making too big of a deal of it? Maybe I'm not. Maybe I caused it. So there's this whole process that you can't quite, because um, there was no violence involved, right? There's not any visible violence. You've not been pinned down. You've not been um, beat up like what we think of the scary rapist around the corner in the dark alley. You, none of those things have happened. And so there's this real kind of just compartmentalizing that happens when you go, well, okay, maybe that's just what it is. And then you just leave it. The next morning you meet up, I met up with this person and he took me out for breakfast and he said, Hey, I'll be talking to you later and let's 
see when we get together again. And that was it. Um, so at that point, I just kind of went on and um, decided that it was just me misinterpreting everything that had happened. And I'm just going to put it over into this box over here and forget about it. From that point on, though, very quickly, um, we uh, had moved on into what I thought was a relationship. But it really wasn't a relationship. It was him at that point. I never saw the man that I met before the sexual assault. I never saw that man again. Somebody else showed up. It was the narcissist showed up. And that's who I had for the next, in the relationship, the next eight years. And then post-discard after that, a total of 12 years. But I was now trauma bonded. I now was um, not being able to process what was happening and thinking that maybe if I just behave a certain way again, that guy will show up again because I don't recognize this person and I'm not sure what to do. But every time I felt like not him not being around, I felt as though I could not function in the world. I would begin to become highly, um, visibly anxious. And my head would spin, it would race, and I needed to be in contact with him throughout the day and throughout the evening to be able to function, or else I would just shut down. And so we began this relationship that now he would start to make fun of how I looked physically, and he would. Um, begin to talk about exes, he would begin to disappear, and I was constantly going out trying to reach uh, and say, I'm quite desperate. I started to get these statements from him of, I'm going through a hard time right now, financially I'm in a lot of trouble, Um, I have a lot of stress, you're putting too much pressure on me. And so what's happening is you're going back to, you're bringing how you were brought up. Oh, we need to forgive this person. Oh, we need to be understanding. They're having a hard time. Oh, he didn't really mean what he just said about how I looked. He's just, it's just stressful for him. And, and I just need to be more careful. And so you start putting all of the responsibility for what is happening on your own shoulders. And that if you just change all of these different things about yourself, he will start loving me more or loving me back the way that he used to. During that first nine months, specifically when it came to um, your body and things like that, was he feeding into like that in the sense of um, your body is beautiful the way it is or seeing you or um, really... Um, praising or reinforcing the positives of the uh, thing that you had the most um, vulnerability around? Yes. So he most certainly um, was uh, complimentary of me when he met me in person and building me up. And because he himself had his own scars of 
from having prostate cancer. So he seemed to be very understanding of that. Um, and he dealt with, you know, he was interacting with cancer survivors all over the world. So he seemed to, it wasn't going to be an issue. It became an issue later, but that he started to tear that down uh, very quickly after that first, after the sexual assault, he started to tear me down within a couple months. So besides the uh, neurodivergency, uh, the mirroring uh, was a big thing for you as far as uh, your likes, your dislikes, the uh, future that you both uh, want as well, uh, feeding into um, your low self-esteem and trying to make positive spins on things uh, while you're at your lowest thinking about uh, your body and, and things along those lines. It, the whole, the whole, and then the whole cancer thing. Who you're getting involved with? Someone who's involved with uh, raising money for cancer and things like that. So why would you think this person is also a a bad person? And now with these excuses of, of the pressure and everything, it makes sense with all these things combined as why you would think, um, okay, he'll change back. He, that person will come. Exactly. And and in my case, even though I can't diagnose um, a person, um, you know, with a disorder that for the purposes of what we're talking here, that this person believes a covert narcissist. So in that regard, outwardly to everyone else, he comes across very self-deprecating, very humble, very kind. He's involved with his, he own, he is the founder of a, a cancer organization. So he's giving, right? He is all of these things, but behind the scenes, behind with just me, I'm seeing who he really is. But being neurodivergent and not totally understanding all of the different, you know, uh, processing that, that information and, the, and these social interactions I'm thinking to myself, everyone else think he's, thinks he's a great guy. So I must be understanding him wrong. I must not be comprehending who he really is as a good person. Because all these things, I, I, all these things I'm seeing back here, how I feel now devalued. I feel that I'm not good enough and attractive enough and all of that. That's my way I interpret it. And he would actually say that to me. Um, he would never interact with me physically. We never had, and after the first two months, we never had any type of physical intimacy again in eight years, ever, of any kind. Um, and so his actions about how beautiful I was, what he would tell me, his actions didn't display that. But I thought, well, that, that's my fault because I'm not loving him enough, so I don't make him feel loved. And he would ask me for um, thousands of dollars in help. And because the cancer organization was not supporting him financially, so he needed to start a new career. So he started asking me for money and equipment and rent and um, studio costs. Because he needed to start a new career if we were going to have a future together. And I thought, well, you know, that's what you do, right? That's what you do in a relationship is you help each other. So I started to give him thousands upon thousands of dollars and buy him 
thousands upon thousands of dollars in equipment so he could start a new career. And I was going to be there for him and support him. So as that started, he became less and less available. And when I would ask for time together and that we needed to still be together in our relationship, he said, you know, I'm trying to build a career. I don't have time for this. I have to do this. So I'm, I'm going to be financially, you know, out on the street. So then I would feel guilty about asking for just like we call it the bare minimum of just seeing each other. So I tried to be the understanding, you know, partner. Okay, what can I do to help him? I need to be more quiet. And I started to make myself smaller and smaller and quit verbalizing the, the needs I had in the relationship because I thought I was being too demanding. And so he began to become highly successful. And it was at that point when he asked me for additional money and I was just tired of giving him money that I said no. And it wasn't too long after that, the discard happened. Because once I said no, I wasn't going to give him any more money. And that's when that was the beginning of the end. Now, the beginning of the end, as we all know, was from the time that the love bombing started. But for me, the beginning of the end was when I wouldn't give him any more money. And it was probably about two months after that is when the devaluation and the real discarding started. And I found out that he was taking other women out. I had the actual proof of that. And I had broken up with him several times. He always begged me back, what we called hoovering. And I didn't recognize it as that. I recognized it as turn the other cheek as you've been raised. When you're in a partnership, you forgive. You work through these things. You work really hard. And he, all he had to do was come back and bring me flowers and say, I am so sorry. I love you. We're supposed we're going to have this future together. I'm just having a hard time right now. You were the person. You're my soulmate. And I dump on you because it is so hard out here. It's because I trust you. It's because I trust you is why I get so angry and why, you know, you're the recipient of what's going on. He would literally say that. And I would feel honored. I would feel honored that I was the person he trusted enough to let his real self come out. <laughs> so that's where the psychological, you know, manipulation and trauma comes in is that you are feeling that you, it's a privilege to be in that place. And um, so the last time when he came and he begged me to come back, I said, yes. And he said, thank you. I feel like I have my family back. Two weeks later, he called me and said, I don't want to see you again. We're over. And that was the final discard. So he had literally hoovered me back in just so he could be the one to dump me two weeks later. And I completely collapsed at that point of that final discard. Because he had never left me before. I had always tried to leave him and he would hoover me back in. And this time he had left. And it was a very cruel way. I, I, he just called and said, we're done. I said, you just told me that you wanted us to try again. And that you were going to get help and that we were going to have this future together. He goes, and he was very cold. And I remember the voice really well. He said, it's never going 
to happen. Very cold. And, and so at this point, I'm confused because someone told me that they loved me and we were going to be a family. And I didn't know how to process it. So I collapsed and I trigger warning for any of those out there. So I attempted suicide. I had uh, an unsuccessful attempt, obviously, on that first one, and um, it was an intervention through friends that were able to save my life at that point and tried to get me help after that. That's what began a almost five-year journey of healing that was very difficult. Once he heard that I had tried to commit suicide, he contacted me and said, you know, I, I want to be there for you. I, I'm sorry. I want to be there for you. I know we're not in a place romantically, but I want to be there for you as a friend. And I was still so trauma bonded that I was willing to accept those scraps, not understanding the continual psychological damage that that was going to incur. I just thought, well, you know, this person, I loved him so much. Maybe we can be friends. But I think deep down, I was hoping he would realize how bad things really had become. And he would change. And he would have this epiphany. And he would still be that partner that I thought he was. I was still waiting on him to come back. So this continual pattern, push me, pull me in the friendship quote-unquote friendship, which right now we understand was more of him just wanting to maintain supply and a plan B, uh, became a, a process that went on for several years until I started to get therapy and I started to treat this particular um, process as a true addiction. As like someone who had an alcohol addiction, someone who had a drug addiction. I have neither of those things. But I started to treat it like one of those things because I didn't see another way out. Anytime we were not interacting, I felt like I was going through a withdrawal. It was devastating. I would pace the floor. I would roll around in my bed. I would cry. I would become anxious. I would lose a lot of weight. So any kind of contact with him would alleviate it, like I had just given myself a shot of heroin. And it didn't matter if it was just a phone call of 30 minutes. I could breathe again. And then I could go a couple days. I'd be okay. And then I'd be texting again and trying to interact. And now we're not in a relationship, right? So he's treating it like he'll just talk to me whenever he feels like it. But I still was almost demanding the same type of accountability as if you were in a relationship. I was treating it like a relationship, but he was not. And so it was just, it was very difficult to be able to navigate that. And finally, when I was trying to have a conversation with him, and this was last year, about the sexual assault and what that meant and how I was getting this, this treatment and I really needed to help process that. That is when I never heard from him again at that point. 
um, because he did not want to have that conversation. And so I did. I attempted um, suicide again. And I decided to go into a treatment program to treat this as, as an addiction and go through the cognitive-based therapies and other therapies um, because I just couldn't live this way anymore. And I had to start really focusing on me. This was no longer about my abuser. This was about me. What is it that I needed to learn about myself so that I could start having the life that I deserved. And I think that's the one thing that may be left out of the conversation sometimes, that we hear it, but we don't really grasp it, is that you, you do need to learn about narcissists, and you do need to learn about the abuse and who those people are. But until you get to the point that you begin to flip that conversation about what is it about me that I can start building myself up so those kind of people cannot cross my boundaries ever again? That it really makes a difference and the healing can really start. So uh, now that you're in this place, uh, what would be your words of wisdom and advice for everyone listening? For me, what I would say is that you're going to start going through that process and you're going to feel like there is absolutely no hope. And I would have been in that same position. I was in that same position for several years. And if you do the work, and it is hard, you have to do it whether you feel like it not, whether you feel like it or not. You've got to just go with the feelings. You've got to let yourself experience the loss understand that this is something that was done to you from a very disordered, abusive person, that you didn't do anything to cause it. Who you are inside allowed that person to prey on you, um, but that you have to get really serious about what it is that you deserve to have a life free of this kind of trauma and this abuse. And so building your self-esteem, surrounding yourself with people that truly love you, um, surrounding yourself and, and reading and like podcasts like this that reinforce the same experiences because you see the patterns. If you hear it enough, you'll begin to realize these are patterns that most all of us experience. And so surround yourself with people that can validate your experience and can validate who you are. And that there is hope to have love again, even if it's just with yourself. That's what matters. And that you can move on from that and have value in the world and begin to experience the happiness and the joy that each one of us as human beings deserve to have. Well, Clementine, I really want to thank you for sharing your story with us today. It's not easy what you did today. Um, you know, you talked about some very difficult things, traumatic things. It's not easy to go back into your past and, and, and discuss these things. So I really want to thank you for uh, doing uh, that for us and, and sharing with our community today. 
Thank you for having me. Well, thank you once again, Clementine. And if you want to be a guest on our show like Clementine was today, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Guest Form. Click on that button, read all of our instructions, and send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com or just fill out our uh, form page and press the Submit button. And also at our website, we have a support group, our very own safe social network. So if you click on the support group button at NarcissistApocalypse.com, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And there we have forum boards that you can post on. People will answer. We have our own Zoom meetings every Wednesday night, Saturday night, and Thursday afternoon. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have follow-up episodes with former guests, and we also have ad-free episodes. And if you just want to support our show join our support group we cannot thank you enough and if you need even more support please do go visit our friends at domesticshelters.org and at domesticshelters.org you can access an extensive library of articles and resources that can help you make sense of what you are experiencing and you can connect with local resources like shelters that can help you find ways to heal and move forward so please do visit our friends at domesticshelters.org and that is it for our episode so for myself and clementine we hope you have a good night.